0: Hello and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by me, Alison Balance. Now there are many challenges in biology, and another one is trying to understand the way our bodies fight unwanted microbes. Bruce Beutler from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center shared the 2011 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for his research into the human immune system.
1: We have an immune system because we live in a world filled with microbes. And over a period of a billion years or so, evolutionary pressure led us to develop this system to defend ourselves. If we didn't have it, we'd simply rot.
0: And now our immune system has several parts to it. Can you tease it out for me?
1: There's an old system, evolutionarily speaking, that we call innate immunity, And this is a kind of immunity that we're all born with, obviously. It's hardwired in the sense that you don't need to have had any previous exposure to a particular infectious agent. You're ready to go. You're able to attack it and overcome it in most cases. About 500 million years ago, a second system evolved, and it only exists in vertebrates, which includes us. We are vertebrates. This is called adaptive immunity. This is the kind of immunity you try to target with vaccines. You do require previous exposure to an infectious agent or to proteins or other molecules from that bug in order to respond with adaptive immunity. And that's why we give vaccines. Uh, We're preparing for the next uh, exposure to a real infection, and then that system is ready to go.
0: So how does the innate immunity work? Does that just generate some generalised response?
1: It, first of all, helps adaptive immunity to develop much better than it otherwise would. Uh, In addition, somehow our white blood cells, for the most part, and other cells to a lesser degree, have the ability to recognise viruses, bacteria, fungi, things that are foreign, and to attack and engulf them in some cases and destroy them. And uh, this is the really remarkable thing. These cells which have no brains, no minds of their own, are able to do that. And they're able to do it with almost every microbe they might ever encounter.
0: So most of the time we don't attack ourselves. We know who we are, but we recognize invaders.
1: That's correct. Exactly right. And if it were not that way, of course, then you would have an autoimmune disease where uh, some people do have that problem, they uh, have a situation where their immune system does attack healthy tissues of themselves.
0: So your area is involved in that idea of how do we sense invaders?
1: Correct. I reasoned quite a long time ago that there must be specialised receptors encoded in our genome that would detect foreign molecules that were quite common One of these molecules was well-known. In fact, a few of them were well-known. The one I chose to work on was called endotoxin, or lipopolysaccharide. That's a molecule that's made by all gram-negative bacteria. And it was quite clear from genetic evidence, even in the 1960s, that there must be a single receptor that detects lipopolysaccharide. the problem was no one could find it for the longest time. So you were on the hunt. I was on the hunt, and I tried all the conventional approaches that people might use. I tried to purify the protein receptor. I tried to use a technique called expression cDNA cloning when that became possible in the 1980s. These things didn't work. And finally, I turned to classical genetics to find the missing protein. Um, This is... uh, situation where you have an animal that doesn't recognize lps lipopolysaccharide and uh, you try to find what's wrong with that animal which gene is damaged and we worked at that for about 5 years and finally tracked it down
0: that was a labor of love
1: <laughs> it was an obsession no question about it it was something i would dream about at night finding the the mutation And time and again, we thought we had found it, and really we had not. So it was filled with all kinds of blind alleys, but ultimately we could track it down. So why did it take five years? In those days, the sequence of the mouse genome wasn't known. Uh, One had first to map the gene to a certain area of the chromosome, then clone all of the DNA between the limiting markers that establish the critical region, and then... Uh, you'd have to look and find what the gene content of that area was. That involved DNA sequencing, which in those days was done by hand, and typically one could get the sequence of a 1,000 or 2,000 nucleotides in a day, but uh, not millions per second, as is possible today. So what was the gene you found? The gene was an orphan receptor gene called Toll-like receptor 4, And it was called that because it was similar to a drosophila protein called Toll.
0: Now, can you tell me a bit more about that? Because you shared the Nobel Prize with Dr. Hoffman, who had done that research.
1: In fact, Toll was a famous protein in the drosophila world, and two Nobel Prizes have been awarded for studies with Toll. The first was given to a lady named Christiana Nusslein-Folhart, who discovered that Toll was important in development in the fruit fly. But that wasn't the end of the story. And about a decade later, Jules Hoffman, who was interested in the whole question of infection and sensing of microorganisms in the fruit fly, discovered it again in a different way. He realized that toll was necessary for flies to overcome fungal infections. And also the ligand for, fly, for toll, a protein called Spetzla, uh, was necessary and he found that these proteins, when they bound to each other physically, would activate a certain transcription factor called DIF, and that would induce hundreds of genes in the fruit fly that had defensive activities. Uh, I didn't know anything about this work, actually, until we discovered Toll-like receptor 4, and then I realized that this must be a very long-conserved type of strategy in... uh, the biological world, because clearly it existed both in mice and in fruit flies, which are separated by about 800 million years of evolution. That's so, the tol- guess.
0: so toll receptors are just in insects, and toll-like receptors are just in mammals? Is it that That's simple? That's correct.
1: That's the convention. Toll receptors are in the fly, toll-like receptors in mammals. In we humans, there are 10 toll-like receptors. In the fly there are nine, but only one of them, the one that Jules Hoffman worked with, has an immune function. All the others are involved just in development.
0: So we've got 10 or so kinds, you say. Are they all involved in our immune response?
1: In humans, yes. Apparently they're all involved in the immune response. And while toll-like receptor 4 detects LPS, uh, toll-like receptor 3 detects double-stranded RNA. Toll-like receptors 2 and 1 and 6 detect bacterial lipopeptides. Toll-like receptor 9 detects DNA, and so on. Each one has a different domain of detection, and acting collectively, they can recognize almost any microbe that you ever might encounter.
0: Can you just describe to me a little bit the toll-like receptor? Am I right in thinking it sits on the outside of the surface of one of our cells?
1: Most of them do, but uh, some of them live within endosomes. Uh, They are in little tiny vesicles inside of the cytoplasm of cells, and to gain access to them, uh, a microbe like a virus needs to be phagocytosed or endocytosed, or there has to be fusion between two vesicles, and then that kind of microbe is recognised.
0: But TLR4 sits on the outside?
1: Predominantly on the outside. So it detects a microbe. What happens? You have a microbial infection. Let's say you get pricked by a thorn and a few bacteria are introduced under your skin. This is a system designed to detect very small numbers of microbes within the microenvironment uh, such as I've described it. One of those bacteria might shed some endotoxin. It might undergo lysis or, for whatever reason, some endotoxin is released. It has contact with Toll-like receptor 4 on a macrophage that happens to be nearby, and that cell will go crazy It will begin secreting hundreds of cytokines, some of which summon other white blood cells, neutrophils in particular. They become activated too. They begin engulfing bacteria in the region. And a race ensues between the innate immune response and the multiplicative ability of the bacterium. And uh, if you don't have this quick early response system, which works in a few minutes actually, then you're likely to get a very serious infection that the innate immune system can't cope with very well.
0: So you work primarily in mice, don't you?
1: Yes, I do. Mice are very, very similar to humans, genetically speaking.
0: So it is what you do is, in a sense, directly applicable to people?
1: Almost always. There are a few proteins that we encounter that exist only in the mouse, but about 98% of mouse proteins have at least a human homologue, and about 80% of them have a human ortholog—that that is, a protein that really is identical by descent from the time that mice and humans were the same species, something like 60 to 100 million years ago.
0: Has your work led to any new drugs or treatments for things?
1: Yes, it, it has. Uh, actually, we've been developing drugs that target and activate toll-like receptors and the idea is to use these drugs as powerful adjuvants to help drive an antibody response. If uh, you wish to make an antibody response against a protein or a part of a protein, one could couple it or co-administer it together with these drugs and the idea would be that you make abundant antibodies also cytotoxic T-cells that have great specificity for the antigen that you administered.
0: Now there was a third person involved in your Nobel Prize as well. Can you tell me a little about him and his work?
1: Yes, he was a friend of mine. He was Professor Ralph Steinman, and he worked for many years to establish the existence of a special kind of cell called the dendritic cell. At one time, I have to admit, I thought that these were probably just the same as macrophages, which everyone knew about at the time. But Ralph was persistent, and he felt that there was a special kind of cell that may look a bit like a macrophage, but was unique in its ability to present antigens to activate T cells and to drive an adaptive immune response. And he was absolutely right. He worked on that for probably about 20 years before everyone really believed him and uh, he won the Nobel Prize for that insight that those cells existed.
0: So half the Nobel Prize went for work on the innate immune system, the other half for the adaptive.
1: Exactly right.
0: Do you think we fully understand our immune system yet?
1: Absolutely not. Uh, We don't understand it nearly as well as we need to. In fact, uh, at one time we didn't understand it at all, And in those days, before there were vaccines to be given to people, the usual situation was that uh, human beings would live, on average, about 10 years. And it was only the lucky few who lived long enough to have children of their own and to keep the species going. Um, This is uh, the kind of situation that there was at one time. So immunity is uh, certainly necessary for us to live, but it only barely allows us to live. It only barely does its job, and uh, it was understanding of the fact that we have an immune system that let us make the first vaccines, and uh, we've made better and better ones as we've come to understand better how immunity works. Now we talk about targeting cancer with vaccines, and in some cases it clearly is effective. It's only just started to be effective. We'll see how much farther it can go.
0: Thanks, Bruce. And Bruce Boitler is a Nobel Prize-winning immunologist at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in the United States. Thanks for listening. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World story first aired on RNZ National on October the 26th, 2017. Want to know more? Just search for Our Changing World on rnz.co.nz. We're also on the new and improved RNZ app, which you can download for free from the Apple or Google stores. And you can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Another RNZ podcast you might like to try is the new series The Long Way Home. Join actor Bruce Hopkins as he walks the length of New Zealand along Te Araroa Trail. Bye for now. Noho ora mai rā.